Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Stephen James, and welcome to the Story Blender, the place where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, our guest today is a gifted storyteller that I've been listening to and enjoying for many years. Ed Stivender has been called the Robin Williams of storytelling by the Miami Herald and the Catholic Garrison Keeler by Kirkus Review. He's an acclaimed, internationally known humorist, author, and professional storyteller who has shared stories around the world since 1977. The National Storytelling Association inducted Ed into its Circle of Excellence in 1996, and he has appeared many times at the renowned National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. So, Ed, thanks for being here with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Stephen. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Now, first of all, you should know that my kids grew up listening to you, wearing out oh, the no. cassette tapes of your stories. Oh, oh how now, nice. I'm yeah, honored. for how... those listeners who don't know what a cassette tape is, <laughs> <laughs> it's pre-CD time. But uh, Yeah, yeah. But, of course, yeah, and I still remember one of the stories is about, uh, well... I think the CD that they, or well, the cassette they listened to the most had the 50 Ways to Fool Your Mother uh-huh. story song on it. Yeah. And the wise one, an old story oh. about the wise one that I always oh, yeah. remember. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. That um, That uh, is one of my favorite tapes, and I still call my CDs, no matter whether they're in a digital format or a, a CD format or whatever, I still call them tapes because of Excellent. the... The beginning uh, the, the business, uh, I had these cassette tapes. And, um, <laughs> the first one I sold for $5 on the streets of Jonesboro, as a matter of fact, before they had a resource center for such things. Oh, wow. Jackie Torrance of Happy Memory, a wonderful storyteller, set up um, a shop, sort of a table out front on Main Street, and had her CDs, and I joined her, the, I think, the next year. And um, Chuck Larkin... And I and Jackie would do it right there on the street before it became a big business thing. So oh, I fantastic. remember those CDs. And the that CD in particular, I mean that tape in particular with the wise one, a lovely story by a fellow um, named Aaron Piper that I found in Friends Journal. I still do. And the 50 Ways to Fool Your Mother written by Bill Harley as a... Um, Hambone song with uh, slapping on the knees and so forth, which I turned into a rap. Both of those pieces are dear to my heart. So I'm I'm glad your children um, had a chance to hear them. I hope they weren't negatively affected by. Oh no, no, the work. they loved. It. They went to sleep listening to them over and over again. So. Oh, nice, good. Yeah, How old are were... they now? Oh my goodness, well they're married. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, good for them. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, one of the things that I was thinking of as I thought through what sort of questions I wanted to tap into your brain about today is when you listen to a story, when you listen to other storytellers, performers, I know some storytellers don't like to be called performers, but um, but in a sense, (laughs) in a sense, they they all are, I I think. But what, what draws you in the most, the humor, the emotion, the characters? Um, uh, first of all, let me say that my first business card had the word performance on it, Ed Stivender performance. And when I first started doing solo presentations after I left the children's theater called the Plum Cake Players, I thought of myself as a performance artist. So the word performance and performer is no problem for me. I, I think that's the basis of it. What, yeah. uh, what intrigues me in a story is a couple of things. I think the first thing that intrigues me is the structure of a story. Classical structures that come through folk tales make stories um, pleasing and palatable. And much of my work, certainly my early work, was uh, based on folk tales. And I love the structure of a folk tale. One time when I was talking to J.O. Callahan, a wonderful storyteller from um, Massachusetts, I said the thing I try most for in telling stories is the snap, like the snap of the finger, the place where the story turns uh, usually quickly. 
the surprise turn that happens in a story. Uh, so that's another thing uh, I'm very interested in. When I coach storytellers, I always warn them that my first interest is in the structure of the story and how the teller decides to structure the story. So th these are sort of formal realities and not um, specifically based on the story itself. Sure. The story itself, of course, is important, but my mm, eye is always looking out for how the story is structured and um, the, the snap and the story, the hinge of the story, the place where it turns, becomes exciting or scary or resolved. Um, that's what I, that's what I um, look for and am most interested in. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say, so um, when you're coaching uh, storytellers and teaching yeah. at your seminars, um, and someone says, "Well, I, I need to do a presentation, and I'd like to tell a you know a story to get it started." And they might say, "I'm no storyteller, though. You know, I'm not, I'm not a gifted storyteller, or whatever." How do you encourage them to tap into their own, you know, um, gifts? To because I think all of us are storytellers. Some of us like to be on stage, and others like to be around the coffee cooler. But yeah, yeah, all yeah. of us, yeah, yeah. Yes, all of us are storytellers. That that's a, a, a fact from the get-go. I think that uh, my advice about presenting is make sure that you're uh, balanced on stage, um, taking deep breaths. I um, warm up my voice before I go on stage, and starting with a story is a, a very effective way of getting an audience's attention. And in fact, in my workshops, that's the first rule of successful storytelling, to get their attention. Hmm. And once you've got their attention, try to keep their attention. The great thing about storytelling is that a story has certain inert uh, or innate parts that keeps an audience's attention. And so getting the audience's attention with a story is, is um, an important thing. I also have a lot of comedy in my stories, and I like the idea of using comedy at the top of a program for a couple of reasons. One, it relaxes the audience, and secondly, it lets the audience feel itself. I hope to get. I hope I'm not getting too theoretical so early in this conversation. But no, it's perfect. I think, yeah, I think of storytelling as a dance, a dance between the storyteller on stage and each person in the audience. I think I created a word which may not be in the dictionary. Audience, a u d i e n t, meaning a person who's in the audience but one individual. <laughs> So and I am um, I, I am participating in my storytelling work in a dance between myself and each individual audience, as well as the audience as a whole. So the dance between the storyteller and the audience as a whole is a very important thing, and the fact that an audience is a member of an audience means that somehow they have to be introduced to one another um, implicitly or subliminally. And my favorite way of introducing each audience to the other audience in the audience as well as the <laughs> audience as a structure, uh, a, a social fact, is through laughter. Hmm. When the first laugh happens, <clears throat> The audience hears um, itself, <clears throat> hears the other people in the in the room, and each audience hears him or her own um, voice, her own his or her own reaction to it, and it's a very um, important moment of uh, laughter. I often start out with having some kind of a um, participation exercise with the audience, like a sing along. The main thing is to allow the audience to feel itself, to um, uh, 
experience itself as a as a social being, sort of, uh, uh, and and then we can go on with the dance, and the dance is very important. I think the goal. I'd like to think that the goal of storytelling is a line from uh, T.S. Eliot somewhere. I think in the Four Quartets, he talks about the experience of breathing together. Mm. So. Um, Many storytellers are in the business for um, education or political action or um, other reasons. And my goal is not any of those things in particular, but the idea of having a group of people um, breathing together, um, whatever that might mean on whatever level you look at it. Yeah, I like so that. That might be yeah. a too complex of an answer to your simple question. <clears throat> no, it's but. a good it's good and I like how you emphasize that storytelling happens within a social encounter. It's not Always. Yeah, it's not just um the performer doing his shtick or whatever uh-huh. it might be and yep. people just sort of listening and clapping up. But but it always happens within this encounter between Listener, and I like that it's a dance between listener and teller and that each responds to each other. Right, exactly. And even if you don't see the um, cues that the audience is giving you visually or orally uh, by ear, there are implicit cues that the audience is always giving about whether there is understanding, whether there is appreciation, and that uh, cue mm, dialogue that happens between the storyteller and the audience is very exciting. It's, it's sort of why I'm in the business. And calling it a business might offend some of your uh, listeners <laughs> or other um, of my colleagues, <clears throat> but in fact, it um, it is a it is a kind of a business. <laughs> yeah, certainly it is. And and um, now you're known for sort of your comfort and presence on stage. You know, oh. sometimes I'll see other storytellers and they maybe feel nervous or they look nervous or mm-hmm. they're fumbling with the microphone and so on. But yeah. when you step onto the stage, you set the audience, I think, um, at ease because you're comfortable in who you are and what you do. And I feel like that has a that says a lot about your awareness of... Uh-huh of the social encounter and so on. What, what, what thoughts do you have about that? Is that yeah. something that registers to you? Yeah, it does. However, um, the first 30 seconds, I may be deceiving you by looking comfortable because the first 30 seconds before that first laugh or that first audience response is a horrible time for me because, <laughs> because I'm very nervous about whether or not the moment is going to be successful. So that for that first 30 seconds of what looks like comfort is, in fact, uh, internal um, chaos, which I hide. <laughs> I try to hide until the first uh, response of the audience, which in my case, hopefully, is a laugh. Now, in, in the Jonesboro audience, I don't know how many of your listeners know what the Jonesboro Storytelling Festival, the National Storytelling Festival in Tennessee is like, but this is an audience who is very savvy about storytelling, who is very accepting of storytelling, and who is very supportive of storytelling, and who have seen me many times. So when I go on stage in front of a Jonesboro audience, I may seem comfortable because it's like coming home. I'm coming mm, home yeah. to a, a, an yeah. audience that, that raised me, in a sense, uh, f- uh, for whom I am um, in great debt for my storytelling career uh, in general and, and the, each storytelling moment that happens there. So it's very easy to be comfortable in Jonesboro, although that first 30 seconds is still a um, pretty scary moment for me. Uh, Frank Sinatra said, if you don't get nervous, you don't have stage fright, then you should get out of the business. So I do have stage fright at the beginning. Yeah, well, I think that you hide the chaos well. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, Thank you. I love this 
just the idea of the laugh and the humor as a way of breaking down walls and allowing people to feel comfortable with themselves, their own voice, and, and the yeah. storyteller, and so on. So, yeah. what are some of the things that you look for in humor? Because uh, there's nothing worse than someone who's trying to be funny and oh. not being funny. Oh, I agree. And yeah, so how do you create those moments of laughter with with an audience? Um, what are the secrets to that? I think a, a secret that I know and use is silliness. Do you remember seeing Steve Martin for the first time? I don't, I don't know uh, when you saw Steve Martin for the first time, but when I saw Steve Martin for the first time in 1975 or whatever, it, it was very clear to me that here was a silly man who didn't mind being silly and who was using his silliness as a power tool, really. Mm to get the audience to laugh. I think silliness is part of the secret of, certainly, of ice-breaking comedy. Yeah. I, I do um, a piece called uh, the, the Mud Miner, in which I say, oh, I was helping a friend dig out a spring, and, here, and now I'm going to sing you this song, the Mud Miner song. There is a chorus, and I start singing the song in a faux Appalachian accent, <clears throat> and then we get around to the chorus, um, of mud miner and the the chorus is just slurping sounds <laughs> that that is so stupid and so silly that the audience has a a choice either they're going to say oh that's silly i'm going to laugh or this man is stupid and i'm not going to laugh because i'm insulted <laughs> by his stupidity hopefully they take the first choice and laugh because it's silly. I had a great time singing that song to my six-week-old niece, Jessica Rose, when she was six weeks old, and she got it. She understood the thing because she understands that sound, whatever that sound might mean for her six-week-old mind, yeah. um, and it brought a smile to her face, and I think it has brought smiles to other people's faces. And So the point being is silliness is a a good tool if you don't mind the self-effacement that it implies. Looking silly is probably something that people dread. Social, it's a social dread about looking silly. Uh, I don't dread it. I um, enjoy it, and I don't mind um, being silly. Uh, and that silliness leads to laughter, which is part of a social... A bonding experience. Yeah. 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 yeah, you talked earlier about how there's a moment where a story turns. And mm. uh, and now when you were talking about humor, it reminded me of this joke that I heard. What's the difference between boogers and broccoli? Oh, dear. Kids won't I... eat their broccoli. <laughs> ah, good one. Good one. Yeah. But um, it's one of those where you hear it and you're like, I, I'm not sure that I want to know. And then all of a sudden you hear right. it and you're like, Oh right. my goodness, that's true. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Where the humor yeah. comes from is yeah, right. And there, there's something that happens in the mind in understanding a joke that philosophers have talked about for uh, thousands of years, and in particular, um, Bergson wrote a, 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 a long, good essay about comedy. Th this business of what makes a comic moment. How, why is a thing funny? Part of it has to do with the interior resolution in our imagination, or in our reason, really, um, uh, the resolution of a, a seeming contradiction. Uh, like something doesn't make sense, and then all of a sudden it makes sense. That, that's an internal snap. Um, something doesn't make sense, but then bang, it makes sense. And that releases tension. You can look up Freud for the issue of tension and, and humor. Releases tension, and um, uh, that t release of tension leads to laughter. And it also leads to self-esteem. Every time you laugh at a joke, you are appreciating yourself as someone who gets the joke. And that, uh, there's a lot of things, a lot of lot is happening in that moment of um, the snap of understanding that leads to um, laughter. So do you find that telling personal stories is often a helpful way for potential speakers at your seminars and so on to begin a presentation? Um, 
where uh, they're maybe doing what you just mentioned, sort of self-effacing humor where they're they're not showing off, but instead maybe telling about an embarrassing moment or something that they learned the hard way or or something. Mm -hmm. Is that that helpful, do you think, or are there other um, great techniques for starting presentations? Mm-hmm. Boy, this is a uh, this is a really good question, and it it touches on a serious um, philosophical and socio historical issue in um, uh, professional storytelling, and that is the issue of um, telling personal stories. Mm. Part of it has to do with the intention of the person telling a personal story. If the intention is to uh, offer the audience a chance for laughter, that's different than the intention being offering the audience a chance for pity, Hmm. pity the storyteller. Um, And this has to do with a sea change in um, professional storytelling that has taken place over the last uh, uh, 30 years, which is a very interesting issue and has led to some misunderstanding and some hard feelings that um, uh, we can maybe touch on later on. But the, sure. the, point, the point is, if, if the intention of the storyteller is to get a laugh at one's own expense, I think that that's um, quite okay uh, yeah. as a way of uh, relaxing the audience. <clears throat> if the intention is to evoke pity for the teller, I think that's a mm, uh, that's that, mm, that's something that I wouldn't be interested in doing myself <clears throat> because for me, the purpose of being on that stage is to give the audience a break from their regular life and a chance to breathe together and relax. And if I find myself burdening the audience with personal problems, I am going against my mm, personal intention and and against my own rules. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I I may be, I am sort of a minority voice in this um, debate that is a real debate in the um, professional storytelling community. Um, but uh, my voice says that uh, if you burden the audience, uh, you should pay them. <laughs> I like it. You know, I heard one uh, storyteller tell a story one time, and I felt like they were telling it for their needs yeah. and benefit rather than yeah. the audience's. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and so I, I'm uh, I'm with you on that, that. That, that we're there to serve the audience and I agree and not for our own you know therapy session or something along those lines I agree I agree and I, I like your use of the word serve the audience um, the as a serve, storytelling as service to the audience um, is uh, I think that's a good insight I, I would agree with that completely now and you've, oh, serving, serving the audience is different than serving the wider community. Some storytellers feel a a drive to confront the audience with political facts outside of the moment of the audience um, storyteller interaction Mm. as a way of getting them to take political action. Uh, Some storytellers do that. I uh, would shy away from doing that um, because I, uh, you're not serve, you, oftentimes you're not serving the audience in front of you by attempting to serve the greater community that does have social and political needs and horrors, you know. There, sure. there are wrong things happening in, in our society, um, but the audience in front of you is the audience that I would like to be serving and not the greater community. Not to say that's not to say that storytellers who try to serve the greater community by uh, suggesting action by people are doing something bad. It's but it's something that I uh, would not do. 
Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I've never really heard it sort of described that way, but it does get to um, a fascinating dynamic of when I'm listening to storytellers, mm-hmm. and I feel like there's a moment where they veered away from the that social event to try and get me to do something, mm-hmm. yeah. which is not necessarily what I'm there for. Yeah. Now, at a political rally or, or something like that, I can certainly see how it would make more contextual sense. But yeah. mm-hmm. at a festival or a performance, it uh, it sometimes just does feel awkward. Yeah. 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 I agree with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Ed, you've been at the forefront of the modern storytelling movement for the last few decades. Now, well, thank you very much. <laughs> no, well, and, <laughs> and if that is true, it is completely by accident. But go ahead. I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> go ahead, finish your sentence. <laughs> well, I was just going to ask, like, uh, what positive changes have you seen in the way that our country is opening up to storytelling over mm-hmm. the over the years? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a very good question. Um, let's look at the word storytelling. Um, when I first started, let's say in 1980, I was featured at Jonesboro, Tennessee Festival for the first time. So that's really the, the, the point where my career as a storyteller changed. And in 1980, when I started doing storytelling, the word storytelling was pretty much a negative word. Hmm. If a, I, I felt so sorry for my poor mother who had to um, get on the bus on her way to work and talk to her neighbors on the bus. And so what does your son do? Oh, this is, 19, <laughs> this is 1980. Oh, my son's a storyteller. I felt so sad for her because she had to use this word, which was such a terrible word. I felt very proud in 1992 when August House published my first book, Raised Catholic, Can You Tell?, so my mother could get on her bus to work. And what does your son do? Oh, my son is an author. (laughs) And the word author always has had a good power of valence. The word storyteller in 1980 had a terrible negative valence. The main thing that's happened positively in the storytelling movement, if we can call it that, in the last um, 39 years is the word storytelling is no longer completely negative. It became neutral sometime around, let's say, 1993, and then uh, has now the word is used to refer to just about every performance artist in the whole world. So that now the word storyteller can refer to um, the, uh, famous actors. The word storyteller can refer to famous directors. The word yeah. storyteller, the main thing that's happened in the storytelling community that is positive is the word storyteller is now a very positive word that is used in many different contexts, and all of them positive, oftentimes to sell something. So that the the um, this magazine is a great storyteller, or this author, uh, fiction author, is a great storyteller. So so that's the main positive thing that I've seen in the storytelling movement. That the word storytelling storyteller is no longer a negative thing, and um, and I uh, so that's a, that's a good thing. Um, there, the storytelling. Uh, Do you remember folk music? Sure. Folk music uh, reached a rather high capacity uh, fame moment sometime between um, the Peter, well, the the, the Weavers, sometime between Pete Seeger's uh, um, and the Weavers and Peter Paul Mary and the the, um, other people in the 60s and 70s. And then um, somehow, Maybe when Dylan went electric, or somewhere along the line, uh, it, the story, uh, folk uh, singing, uh, it, it sort of uh, waned, declined, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure what what all the processes were. Something like that happens uh, has happened, I think, in the storytelling, uh, professional storytelling m- movement, in that. It, there was a heyday of it, and uh, the heyday may um, uh, may be different. It's not as heydayish, uh, if I may make a <laughs> word there. 
um, uh, actually, let me let me walk that back. Uh, um, storytelling is still a vibrant aspect. Professional live storytelling at um, colleges and festivals and so forth is a vibrant reality of our culture. But there has been a change, and I think that um, storytelling, festival storytelling, is being replaced by another kind of personal storytelling that um, that I am um, concerned about because it might mean that the audience that made the storytelling revival so vibrant um, 20 years ago is uh, falling away um, because of um, the kinds of stories that are being told now. On the other hand, there are organizations like The Moth and phenomena like Story Slams that are inviting a whole new level of audience to join in, understanding that the work that they are about to see or experience is going to be personal storytelling. When I first got started in the business, if I may, in 1980, I would say maybe 95% of the stories that were told from the stage of Jonesboro, Tennessee, were traditional, um, classic folk stories. Every once in a while, a storyteller who was telling traditional classic folk stories would um, dip into how they got to do this story or something about their personal lives. Uh, but most of it was it was um, uh, f- folklore telling, which um, made it very easy for me to come into the business, and uh, because I love folk tales and I love the structure and so forth. And then people began to be worried about copyright, mm-hmm. and what does a storyteller do about copyright of material that has been written down and has been copyrighted and a solution was found the way to avoid copyright problems was to tell personal stories then there was a sea change in the storytelling movement so that now I sometimes am the only storyteller in a festival who doesn't tell personal stories as my main stay so I'll go on and there will be an evening of storytelling and five or six storytellers will be telling and this one will tell about that event in their life, and the other will tell it. And then Ed Starvin will come on with a, with a folktale, which is a relief for me um, uh, because there's no danger of burdening the audience with a folktale. Yeah. There is always a danger of burdening the audience with a personal story. So that is something that has happened, which I see as um, difficult. On the other hand, the phenomenon of the moth, which was always based on personal stories is develop excuse me is developing a whole new audience and uh, is uh, taking off in ways that storytelling traditional storytelling is on the wane so it's a it's a funny business i you know what per, you know what stand up comedy is sure i am afraid that this other kind of personal storytelling um is edging towards stand up tragedy that a person stands up in front of an audience and tells the tragic story of their life. And I think that people who go to a storytelling festival looking for entertainment or relaxation or whatever and are faced with stand-up tragedy stories may not come back. Hmm. And I think that's a dangerous um, energy that's happening in the national storytelling movement, that people are being turned off by hearing about other people's woes and aren't coming back. That is a great um, summary of something that I've been observing over the years, over the many years of, mm-hmm. of telling stories and writing stories and being a part of the community of storytelling. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think another aspect that I've noticed is this idea of people are afraid to offend uh, someone from another culture. So they avoid telling stories from that culture. Ah, uh, good one. So, yeah, so it's almost like those two factors, the one about the copyright and then the people are like, well, I don't want to infringe on your culture, so I won't tell yeah. any stories from yeah, New Zealand. Yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Like, yeah. The only way the stories ever stay alive is if we continue to share them and tell yeah. them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You're pointing uh, out a, a really yeah. important thing that I, I haven't thought much about, but the, the fact that people are afraid of. And then now this word of expro, uh, appropriation. Appropriation, along, yeah. At, which is, and now we're getting appropriation panic. People are really afraid. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So uh, I, I think I, yeah, that drift towards personal stories has been has been very strong. Yeah, yeah. Now that said, um, we have to talk about some geniuses in the community. Donald Davis is a genius. Donald Davis started off doing uh, uh, traditional stories as though they were from his family or about his family, and then. Uh, he has, in the last 20 years, has zeroed in on um, stories about people, stories about live people or so-called personal stories. However, Davis has an internal structuring dynamism which allows him to apply what he learned from the stories that he heard in his youth, the Appalachian folk tales. He applies that to his own storytelling of personal events, and so the audience is... Um, loves Donald Davis. I love Donald. Everybody loves Donald Davis. Yeah, yeah. But part of the secret is that Davis has these internal structures, and he—he, he, I have never heard Davis uh, burden an audience with his own problems. Mm-hmm. Um, there yeah. are other people okay. in, the, in the same business. Um, uh, J. O. Callahan is uh, is another uh, brilliant storyteller who has who has told personal stories all along the line, and everyone who's wor- all the storytellers who are working today tell a brilliant personal stories um but it, it, there are enough non-brilliant personal stories that might be um affecting the 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 audience um re- revival that is different now than it was 30 years ago so you listed a number of different storytellers as we've been talking, and I've heard some of them, and, and I'm aware of them, and I've really enjoyed them. And one you mentioned earlier was Jackie Torrance, and the first time I ever told at a major festival, yeah. I followed Jackie Torrance. And, oh, no. <laughs> was that hard or wonderful? It, well, it was much it was much preferred to following someone who had done poorly. So she uh-huh. had done a, a, a just an amazing job of capturing the attention of the of uh, the tent full of people and, and telling yeah, a story yeah. and so there I was, this was in nineteen ninety six or seven oh, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, Okay, now Stephen James coming I was like I get uh, to follow one of the best storytellers, you know, in the world but uh um, Yeah, yeah. So it was a little intimidating but um like that. But how did sure you do? Was, how did you feel it went? Oh, I felt it like it went Great, and yeah. and I think partly because the audience was just in such a wonderful place. Yeah, that would have yeah. much, been much harder if the person had bombed, and then they're like, "Oh, now you got to listen to someone else." And you're like, "Oh yeah, no!" Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. Oh, that's a good experience, and I yeah. hope that uh, the people who are in your listening audience know enough to get, get on the web or go to their local library and hear Jackie Torrance because she was. Uh, one of the great, the grand dames of the uh, community. And it was she who sort of gave me permission to tell uh, Br'er uh, Rabbit stories. Oh, yeah. Either, either implicitly. I mean, she didn't say, um, well, she said, don't worry about it. <laughs> so I have two yeah. Br'er stories, Uncle Remus-type stories, uh, that I've changed to take the the uh, overt sting out of. I mean, there is some material in the, um, the uh, other cultures that um, retains a sting, so that I don't t- tell a story about the tar baby, but I do tell the story about the honey bunny. So hmm. taking the structure of those great stories, but taking the barbs out is something which I have fun doing. And I think Jackie Torrance's work allowed me to make those kinds of decisions. Now, but she's a great uh, storyteller. Yeah, she surely was. And um, and uh, now one of the things that I wanted to ask you is uh, mm-hmm. you're known for your ability to improvise mm-hmm. and create stories on the spot, sometimes mm-hmm. with simply just a few suggestions from the mm-hmm. audience. Yeah, yeah. What what have you learned about storytelling by doing this? Or can you give us any sort of hints to try and um, be more um, – present in a moment to improvise as we might tell our own stories. Uh-huh. Um, 
first of all, you have to trust the you have to trust that the audience is going to trust you. Mm. If you can trust that the audience is going to let you let you go along, then it's a, a wonderful thing. So that's that's the first thing you have to trust the audience. Um, uh, the second thing. Um, well, I can tell you one of my trade secrets, which probably I, I shouldn't, um, I, I should not tell trade secrets of, to the public. But <laughs> uh, my, I often do at the end of a show. I'll close a show with an improvisation based on audience suggestions, in which I ask the audience for five ideas: the name of a famous fairy tale, a character from another fairy tale, a place where fairy tales don't occur, a disgusting habit, and a saying. I'll take up and I'll make up the story. That is a setup which has its its own ingredients for success, and that is every fairy tale, as I mentioned before, has an internal structure. Mm, and yeah. many fairy tales are so well-known in a culture that people know exactly what happens in this story so that if you start out with a famous fairy tale, the audience and you, the storyteller, improviser, has a ground from which to work. Everyone knows what page they're on. And then when you play within that structure, there is risk, which leads to laughter, nervousness, which leads to laughter, hopefully, uh, but also a ground of uh, structure, which is important. The, my, and then I, use, I take those five ideas and make a story using my harmonica. The first thing I do is start playing harmonica. And I, there's no tune in the harmonica I'm playing. It's just back and forth. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and while I'm doing that, wah, 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 I'm trying to figure out what the first line is going to be. Oftentimes, right. I take the music from the wah, 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 and make up a little ditty, a the, the, the song for the first person in the story to sing. And then I return to the um, harmonica. Every time I return to the harmonica, the audience thinks I'm, entertaining them and hopefully i am but i know that i'm working on the next thing the next snap the next turn Excellent. Yeah. yeah and that's that's a trade secret that i hope no one steals and makes more money <laughs> than me but, but that is a fact so there's two things oh, and the other thing is there's stock characters in storytelling um there you know the three the, the two evil sisters stepsisters and so forth and um so forth and so on so staying t- playing with those stocks that everyone knows is uh, another aspect of the thing sometimes in my classes when i teach writing i will say to people okay go ahead and write a story and i'll just sit down oh no <laughs> four or five minutes later i'll say how how, how have you done and of course, most of the people haven't even started anything. Uh-huh. And I'll say, well, what what was holding you back? And they're like, yeah, well, yeah. I can't think of anything. I don't have any ideas. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. So then I'll say, okay, in the next three minutes, I want you to yeah. write a story about a pickle that doesn't want to get eaten. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of three minutes, everybody has a pickle story, you know? Yeah, you yeah. You have comedic pickle stories and tragic yeah. pickle stories. And, yeah. And, and uh, so then I'll say, well, what was the difference, you know, between the first activity and the second? And yeah. the only difference was that I gave them limitations. And Oh, limitations. Good one. Yeah. It's, there's this paradox in creativity yeah. where limitations actually set us free. And yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if we're free to write about anything, or if yeah. I said, Ed, make up a story on the spot, you might say, ah... Well, yeah, you yeah. you probably wouldn't you'd be able to, but but many people would would say I can't I can't make up a story, but but when you give them those limitations, as you mentioned, the five factors that you use in in that uh, routine, yeah, um, yeah. then I feel like that frees us up to be yeah. more creative. Yeah. Oh yeah, good one. There's an insight right there that that limitations are freeing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it seems counterintuitive, but it. So one of the things is I'm working on, say, a new book or uh-huh. presentation, one of the first things I try to do is limit myself. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, to, in order to free myself up to um, think of the ideas that I might might want to use. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's, it's a fun paradox to play with. Um, yeah, yeah. So do you have any other um, insights that you might have for people who are, let's say that I work at a business and I have to do a, uh, not necessarily a performance, but a presentation. Yeah. And uh, so I have, okay, um, I know I'm going to be 
um, in front of 50 people, and yeah. and I need to speak for 20 minutes and give them some some inf- information or something. Are there yeah. any other secrets from all of the many, many thousands of times you know that you've told stories and performed around the world that uh, might be helpful for that person yeah. listening? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any control of the structure of the event, use it. If you can make sure that dinner is finished, if you can make sure that everything, all the tables are cleared, if you can make sure that there's nothing else going on except you, try to try to get that. That doesn't always happen. Uh, make sure that the sound and light are possible. A lot of times in a in a public setting, there's no thought about lighting. Try to get control of the of the setting uh, structure. Uh, then, once you, if you've done whatever you can, um, uh, if they ask, do you want to be introduced? The answer to do you want to be introduced is yes. Having an introduction of a person allows the audience to focus on the person who's introducing you. So that's the, that's the next thing. Meanwhile, off stage, you're doing your breathing exercises. You're making sure your diaphragm is working. Your your um, I always say prayers. Uh, being a Catholic boy, I, I've been very lucky with prayers. Uh, but uh, warming up the voice, warming up the body, doing um, some exercises off stage, not where people can see you, uh, is very important. Believe that the audience wants you to succeed because here's a secret. This is another trade secret. The audience is better off with you succeeding than with you failing. The audience wants you to succeed. Yes. Another yes. fact is don't wait until you're ready. That's, there's another trade secret. Don't wait yes. until you're ready. Um, uh, speak. Uh, relax them with something up top. Either maybe not if they don't know you, maybe not necessarily silly, but something that some way that they can respond. Um, a joke, starting with a joke, is is a is sort of um, is a, an important thing to think about. If you can get them to participate in something, uh, okay. Um, but having them um, focus and recognize that it's you're doing it now and it's your turn and that they should shut up, giving them signals that that should be the case. And then if they don't shut up, don't wait for them. Just go ahead. That's, That's good. When you were, yeah, when you were talking through that, I remember one presentation I was giving somewhere and I was so nervous. I got up yeah. front and I said, all right, everyone, uh, just take a moment and shake the hands of two people dressed worse than you are. Oh, and good one. People began to, you know, shake hands at least, but they laughed. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. After 15 seconds or something like that, yeah, yeah. then I was able to do the presentation, and everyone was on my side. It was just yeah. that simple of yeah. breaking that down. And, yeah. you know, um, sometimes people who are actors will talk about that fourth wall. Uh-huh, but in yeah. storytelling, it sounds like, yeah. especially with the dance that you, you yeah. work toward, Ed, that that's, yeah. not, that's not present for you. No, no. You've uh, you got to get rid of the fourth wall as soon as you can, oh, um, in general, in general. Although I use the fourth wall in some of my work, the fourth wall is not necessarily helpful. Yeah. The fifth wall, I, I talk about in my workshop, the fifth wall is the wall behind the audience, the wall that's take, keeping out all of the distractions. That fifth uh, wall nice. is very important. Fourth wall, not so much. One time I was presenting in San Diego, and uh-huh. uh, this room that I was in behind me, what, yeah. the entire wall was a mirror. Oh, no. And so they wanted me to teach an eight-hour course on um, storytelling, creative storytelling. Oh. And, yeah. and so I thought, this is terrible. And, and beyond that fifth wall that you just mentioned was the swimming pool. <laughs> oh, so, no. So no. we were in San Diego, and I'm oh. supposed to teach for eight hours where every 15 to 20 seconds someone in a bikini is going to walk across the stage oh, behind me. No. And so thankfully I did uh, get there early enough to take yeah. all the chairs and turn them toward a sidewall so that when yeah, 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 yeah. people yeah. finally arrived, they had no idea that the, yeah. that the room had been reset. But yeah. I like how you emphasized that earlier, taking – um, control of the space yeah. and being yeah. aware of it, yeah. looking for those distractions and then removing yeah. them even before anyone else even, you know, showed up. It only yeah. takes, yeah. you know, it only takes a couple of minutes to turn chairs to the side. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Good one. 
Good one. Yeah, it made a big difference, but I'll tell you yeah. that would have been a yeah. frustrating day. So. Yeah. Well, and, and I really enjoyed Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, uh, once you're into it and there are distractions and things that the audience recognizes and you recognize at the same time, let the audience know you recognize it and make light of it. Do something about it. I love technical problems that happen when I'm on stage because I can respond to them, which gives the audience a comfort level that says, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. So respond to whatever distractions come. But try to get it so that there's no distractions imminent. But that response that you have is part of that dance with the audience, and it, it yeah, sets absolutely. them at, at ease. Yeah. They're not just sitting there thinking, oh, he's doing the shtick that he's done a hundred times at every other event. Right. It's word right. for word. Instead, right. I think it helps people feel valued. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, I have really enjoyed uh, listening to your insights. And, oh, me uh, too, and yours as yeah. well shared these and of course we want our listeners to go and um buy a copy of your cd or check out some of your books where would you well first of all which would you recommend they start with as far as like let's say the storytelling cds um uh, i would say the one to start with um, might be the storytelling uh, called Tell in Time. Tell in Time was made in, at the National Festival, and Tell in Time uh, has uh, sort of my favorite classic stories, like um, the, uh, Lady Gawain and uh, Sir, I mean Sir Gawain and uh, Lady Regnell is on there, and um, so that's where I would start. And then uh, all of my CDs or tapes, as I call them are great. The most recent one called Like a Party, which is my uh, attempt at uh, scripture, humor in scripture, which I did last year in 1917 at the National Storytelling Festival, is my latest uh, CD. Uh, but my books are uh, possible to get on Amazon and also your local library, um, Raised Catholic Can You Tell, and Still Catholic After All These Fears. <laughs> and um, on my website says edstivender.com, but if you just Google Ed Stivender, you get a couple of different things, including me in the Mummers Parade um, at various times. So I'm on the web, and I'm real live, and I'll be at the Zalia Festival in Georgia on March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and the Georgia Mountains Festival on April 11th. So, oh, um Yeah, come out and see me. And please say hello. <laughs> That would be yeah, that would be fantastic. But please do the best way to catch Ed is if you can hear him live, um, as Thank we've you. talked through, you know, throughout this um, this uh, interview. People have said, "Oh, I want to hear that story." That story. Well, yeah. we all want to hear hear him live. So, yeah. so check that out. And special thanks to Suspense Radio and to John Robb for hosting our show. And for more information about my. Um, my speaking schedule and my writing schedule, you can go to stephenjames.net. Uh-huh. And for more info about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And yeah. always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time. <laughs>